You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Take your copy of God's Word. Go to Genesis chapter 24. I'm not going to get through this tonight. This is an incredibly important passage. I say that every week, don't I? Well, can you tell me a chapter in the Bible that is not incredibly important? There's not one. Uh, Let me tell you a story. I'm going to get into this tonight, and I will finish it next week. And I'm going to tell you tonight, this is all about Isaac finding a wife. It is the longest chapter in Genesis. Now let that sink in for a minute. It is the longest chapter in Genesis. Think about what is in the book of Genesis. You've got two chapters that deal with creation. You're told the story of creation in chapter 1, and you come back and you're given the story of creation again. And you, you say, well, I always wondered about that. That is a technique, that is a Hebrew uh, technique of writing. It's, um, it's unique to the Hebrews. They will say one thing and they will come back and they will say it again in a different way. Uh, chapter 3 of Genesis is incredibly important because it talks about the fall of man. How in the wor- why in the world are we in the situation that we're in because of chapter 3 of Genesis and what takes place there? Think of Noah and all of that. Uh, think of um, the whole of the life of Abraham that we've been in. And then we're going, then you get after Abraham, you're going to get to a little bit of the life of, of Jacob. That's not near as long. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, and then you get to Joseph. And that's a pretty long narrative there in the book of Genesis. But now think, the longest chapter in the entire book deals with finding this boy a wife, which is kind of interesting. And I'm going to, if I don't get to it tonight, I'll get to it next week. So let me set it up this way, because it's a little unusual situation. Um, There was a very wealthy lady in the city of Moscow by the name of Nadia Van Meek, who had lost her husband. He died in 1876. Uh, She had all the money she could possibly use. Uh, This was a unique time in the life of Russia, in the life of uh, that huge country ruled by czars, And it was a time of uh, the arts were flourishing at that time. She had very little consolation in her life, but one thing, and that was her grand piano. She loved music. She loved the piano. And she was introduced to the music of a young musician who was about 36 years of age at the time she came to know him. She fell in love with his music. Now, do you see where this is going? She eventually fell in love with him. She contacted him, and she was offering herself to be a patron, and uh, she commissioned him to write music because she loved his music so much, and she loved him, and as things would be, he fell in love with her. And it was during this time that he began to write some of his greatest music. Um, They shared each other's joys. They shared each other's sorrows. They were in love. They expressed their love each to the other. Uh, And he wrote music during this time that was just phenomenal. In fact, all morning long when I wrote this, I listened to Swan Lake. His name was Peter Tchaikovsky. Um, If you've not ever heard uh, Swan Lake Suite, go home tonight, put the kids to bed, 
and uh, get with your sweetie and sit on the couch. Put that on and just sit there and look at each other. It is, a be- it is an incredible piece of music, Swan Lake. And so they had this unbelievable relationship with one another, but something happened and we don't know. We know about the relationship because of the letters that they wrote each other, but we don't know what happened. She simply stopped writing him. Nadia stopped writing him letters. And he continued to write her and he continued to pursue the relationship, but he never got a response back from her. However, when she died, her last breath, the last thing on her lips was the name Peter Tchaikovsky. Well, the fact of the matter is they never met. It was all a long distance correspondence relationship. Now we live in a day of email and Instagram and Zoom and FaceTime and text messaging And all of that, and it sounds weird to us, but that was not that unusual. And they both lived in Moscow, but they never met. Uh, But they were wildly in love. And when you come, now you say, why do you tell us these stories? Because I like to tell them. No, you, 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 I tell you that because when you come to the 24th chapter of Genesis, you come to a couple who will decide to marry, and they've never seen each other. They've never met. And so you're going to get the story of this bride for Isaac out of the 24th chapter, and it is an unusual story. It's a great story. It's a tremendous passage of Scripture. You've got the son of the promise who's around 40 years old, and he hasn't married. Now, that's going to make his father about a hundred and. Uh, 40 years of age. Uh, Abraham's got about 35 more years to live, uh, but he's 40 years of age. Isaac is, and I suspect by this time he's ready to get married. I would assume that he is ready to marry, and he's probably going to marry a 20-year-old. So he doesn't know it at this time, but that's exciting for any man. I don't care who you are. I just said it. So it was. He, he is ready to get married, and his father wants to be sure that this is going to be the right marriage for him. Now, just as I said, every one of these chapters I come to, I said, this is a great chapter. This is a great chapter. Well, this really is a great chapter. Gloria Estefan, who is, you know, she was a musician. There's no comparison to Tchaikovsky, but she had a line in a song that went like this. We seal our fate with the choices we make. We seal our fate with the choices we make. That is so true, and it is especially true when it comes down to who you choose to marry. Because who you marry will impact the rest of your life. Wouldn't you say so? However, when it comes to the obedience of Christ and obedience to his word, Uh, It is nothing in comparison to the impact of that because Christ, in obedience to him and his lordship, will not only impact every area of your life, it is going to shape your entire eternity, and your life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. So uh, he is very much interested in who this boy is going to marry. Um, 
Abraham becomes very involved in this whole thing. Now, we're in a time where we're watching our society. You're watching Western civilization. I I read a little bit of history, so I feel like I know a little bit of something of history. I think they will look back and write about our time period and our generation is when Western civilization essentially just unraveled. What is contributing to that is what's happened to marriage in this society and in the Western world, in Europe, in Western Europe, and in, uh, in, in America. And what's happening to marriage is this. The divorce uh, situation has played a huge role in uh, the unraveling of this society. Uh, we don't take seriously the Word of God in the church anymore about uh, a marriage partner uh, for life, uh, that God intended marriage to last for a lifetime. Uh, and because of that, the divorce rate in the church is no different than you find in the world. Um, and it has had a tremendous impact, not only on society, but in church as well. So you've got this whole thing. In fact, if divorce were a disease, we would be in a pandemic state right now. Uh, we would, everything in the country would stop at this point, uh, and everything would be done. I, I, that's why tonight we have a parenting seminar going on for young parents. We want to be a church that does everything it can to help bolster and build and solidify and stabilize people's marriages. And I don't know anything that will do that better than the Word of God. So we live that way. Now, some of y'all have experienced, listen, we've got a son that went through a divorce. It was very hurtful. I remember, I can't tell you all that wrapped around that. It hurts. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not what he wanted. It's not what she wanted. It's not certainly not what we wanted, but it does happen. And you just have to be honest and deal with it. The other part of that is the change in, in the definition of marriage in the Western world. Uh, when you change the definition of something that historically and fundamentally has been that a husband, a man, and a woman are married for life, and you make it to basically a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, you basically have opened it up that you can marry anything you want to. I have read... Um, I have read where there have been those who have uh, gone to marry their dog, their cat. There's some guy I just read an article about who married um, an animation figure. And it is funny to read how many times Siri is asked, can I marry you? So you, you can pretty well marry whatever you want to marry this day. It has changed fundamentally the whole concept of family. And that's basically what this chapter is about. It's about family. It's about the home. It's about marriage. It's about the parents' role in this whole thing of their children and their children's marriage. Well, we're in a position to where we desperately need a biblical cure for what ails American society. And you're going to see a little bit of what um, Abraham does in this passage with Isaac who is looking for a wife. Now, Abraham, as I said, is about 140, but he puts his foot down. Now watch this. Beginning in verse 1, he's going to put his foot down about who his boy is not going to marry. Now, Abraham was old. Advanced. Now listen, my wife's not here tonight. We've, she has been gone all day. She's had 
appointments that she's had to get to. I have, have you ever had your wife look at you and say, that boy is not going to date that girl? Now, go do something about it. Have you, have you, has that ever happened to you? Well, it has to me. Uh, Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. And so here Abraham puts his foot down and he says this, you are not going to date those girls. You're not going to date them because every, listen, here's the principle here. Every person you date is a potential marriage partner. So the thing to do is this, you just don't even go there. You, you determine in your mind who I'm going to date, what, are, what, what that is going to look like, and uh, I am not even going to think of the possibility of dating somebody outside of that. You can date somebody one time and just fall head over heels in infatuation and think you're in love with somebody that you don't have any business dating. Now, I'm giving you some personal experience here, okay? Just listen to the voice of experience. Well, uh, he says it's not even going to happen. You're not even going to date them because anybody you date is a potential marriage partner. Then beyond that, this is what Abraham said to, and I think this must be Eliezer. We're not told that he tells Eliezer, not only that, you're not going to take him back to Haran where my family is. Now, you remember when Abraham left Ur, that he went up north and he went into a place and he stayed there, a place called Haran, until his father died. His father went with him. His brother went with him. His brother's kids, that's where Lot comes from. Uh, Bethuel is a nephew of of Abraham. That's his brother's son. He has a daughter by the name of Rebekah. And hang on to that because that's where uh, Isaac is going to get his wife. Uh, He's not even going to let him go back there. And I'll, I'll probably get to that tonight, and if I don't get to that tonight, I'll get to it later. Why is he so adamant about that? And you say, well, why is all of this important? Why is this, and how important is all of this? Well, I've already told you this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Now, if you want to know, if you want to ask a question, ask the question, God, why is the 24th chapter the longest chapter in, in, in the whole of Genesis? Because God would say, what is discussed here is that important. Do you know it's told, the story is told twice, and then we're told in verse 66, it's told a third time to Isaac. This story is going to be recounted in detail two full times. And then you come down to that verse 66, and he's going to, the servant is going to tell Isaac all these things all over again. So there's a reason why that's important. Now, this is the interesting thing to me. Now, just think of it this way. If CNN existed in Abraham's day, if Fox News existed, if MSNBC or ABC existed in Abraham's day, what would they be covering at that time? They would be down in Egypt covering the mystery and the mystique and all of the uh, all of the intrigue 
of the pharaonic court and dynasties. That's what they would have been covering. That's what they would have been. They would have been all over that. They'd have been all over their building program. They're building pyramids at this time. Abraham would have seen that when he was down there. He would have seen the, uh, seen the pyramids. He would have seen them building these things. Uh, they would have been covering the battles of Egypt and the wars that Egypt was involved in. That's what they would have been covering. They would have been covering the Phoenicians. At this time, the Phoenicians were building ships, and they were sailing the entire Mediterranean. The Phoenicians were, they were, they were, the, wall, they were the traveling Wall Street of that day. Uh, they had covered all of North Africa. They had all of these little trading posts and villages all over North Africa, all over Sicily, all up in Venice, which is going to become a major, major um, uh, uh, merchandise port uh, into what we call today Istanbul. You go back to Cons- uh, Constantinople there in Turkey. All of that area the Phoenicians were in, they were the high financers of that day. They were dealing all of the merchandise. That's why you never see the Phoenicians really fighting anybody because they didn't want to fight you. They just wanted to do business with you. They would have been covering that. They would have been all over that kind of stuff. They would have been all over the Assyrians because the Assyrians were massing an army right now, and they were putting together this unbelievable military machine that would begin to roll out and dominate the middle uh, the middle east and they're training their troops to be these vicious very vicious uh, soldiers, they would have been cov- covering that. They would have covered the Egyptian court. They would have covered the Phoenicians in their economics. They would have covered the military aspects of the Assyrians. But none of that is in the Word of God. Everything I've just given you, I've had to pick up out of history somewhere. None of that is in the Word of God. It tells me that's not what God is looking at. It's not a, y'all. We all in America think that Access Hollywood has got the latest fad and the latest news, and if we're not up and in on that and what is going viral on the Internet, if we're not up on social media and the latest rage on social media, we think that it would probably shock you to know that heaven pays none of that any attention. But what does he look at? What is God interested in? A 40-year-old man who's never been married and probably a 20-year-old girl, and they're hundreds of miles apart right now. Now, does that say anything to y'all? It says this to me, that we sit here and we often think, well, God's, he, God's watching and got his hands full of Uh, of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump. Well, he does. I am certain of that. And there is Putin and his eyes are on Putin and his eyes are on she and his eyes are on all these other things. And yet the word of God never talks about any of that kind of stuff. But what he's interested in is this. He's interested in you. And if you're a single here tonight, he's interested in who you're going to build a relationship with. And he's interested in your marriage. And he's interested in your grandkids and who your grandkids are going to build a relationship with. And he's interested in this. Now listen, he's interested in how you are going to take your faith and pass it down to the next generation. He is not, he is not caught up with the intrigue and the mystery of the courts of Pharaoh 
or the economics of the Philistine, of the Phoenicians, and he is not all caught up in the military power of the Assyrians. He is looking, now I don't know about you, but now that just tickles me to death, that he is just caught up with this 40-year-old boy that is going to meet a girl, and when he meets him, the whole thing's already worked out. They're going to get married, and they've never met. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. So watch this. This this is what I want you to see. This one single young man, this one single young woman, God finds significant. What does God find significant? He finds significant how we will take our faith and pass it down to the next generation. We've got a great and a grave responsibility. Those of us that are in the church in the year 2019, and that is there is a generation coming up under us who does not know the gospel. They don't know anything much at all about church in any kind of way. They don't know anything about the word of God. Um, And before we pass off the scene, it is our responsibility to get this gospel message to them. Now, that ought to be the all-consuming thought of every single church that there is. And every single Christian, and it is for Abraham, this is his deep concern right here. 140 years of age, Sarah is dead, she's gone, he's got about 35 years of life now left, and what is he going to do? What is he going to give his energy and his time to at 140 years of age? Well, let me tell you what he is going to find critically important, and it is not going to the mountains and watching the leaves change. It is who this boy is going to marry because he is critically concerned that the person that Isaac marries is going to be as much like Isaac, especially spiritually, as anything else. That's his greatest concern. That's his greatest desire. Now you say, well, now wait a minute, preacher. That you, you, Abraham gets into meddling into the love life of his son. That's encroaching, that's infringing uh, on his son's love life. No, it's called being involved uh, with his son. Um, something that we don't do a whole lot of. Being involved in the life of this boy and the decision that he makes about who he's going to marry. So he calls in. This is what Abraham does. He calls in, and I think it must be Eliezer. We're not told. It's, we're just told his servant. But he calls him in, the oldest of his household. So that's probably Eliezer, who had charge of all that he owned. Again, that's probably Eliezer. And he says, place your hand under my thigh. And you say, well, what in the world is going on here? That's a little weird. Now, remember, this is 4,000 years ago. That's a whole different culture and a different mindset and uh, just like we have little idiosyncrasies today, um, they had idiosyncrasies then as well. The thigh was always seen as the strongest part of the body. This is what you push up with. This is what you push off with. Uh, this, these thighs right here hold you up and carry you all through the day. And so basically what he was saying was this. In putting your hand under his thigh, he was saying, with all my strength, I ask you this. 
You pledge, I'm putting all my strength into your hand. I'm putting everything that I am into your hand. Uh, And this is what I want you to promise me. Now, just look at the passage, and let me just read it to you. I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and my relatives and take my wife uh, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman's not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. Don't you dare do that. Uh, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you. You will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you are free from uh, this, my oath. Only do not, he comes back, only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So there he is. He is going to be all wrapped up as much as a parent could possibly be uh, in helping find the right woman for his son to marry. Um, We ought to do everything we can to stay involved in the lives of our children. And that, I think, that also means being very involved in their love life. And you say, when a preacher, were you? Yes, we were. Um, I, I don't say that we did it right. As I said, I've, I've had a son who's gone through a divorce, um, has a great wife uh, now, has five children. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the Lord is good and the Lord forgives and the Lord is merciful and he blesses. Uh, but we were very much involved as much as parents could possibly be in the life of, of our kids and who they were dating and who they were seeing and who they were going out with. Um, as I said earlier, I've had my wife look at me and say that he is not going to date that girl. I've watched my wife, get, I have watched my wife fall on her knees beside the bed and pray a girl out of one of my boy's lives, you know. So you do that. You stay involved as much as you can, and you say, well, now, look, all of my children are married and gone. You got grandkids? I got 14 of them, 14 of them. I planned until I breathed my last to put my two cents in on all of it, on every bit of it. It's our responsibility. Uh, We have been given that task, and if God gives us children or grandchildren, then, listen, we need to be involved in sharing with them, teaching them, passing our faith down to them. I went through with my parents, they would ask every single time, you know, who is this girl? What's her family? What's her dad? Who are these people? Do you know them? Where are they in church? The first question out of my mouth to any of my children when they came to me and said, I'm going out on a date. I'm gonna, can I go out and date this girl? The first thing I asked was, do they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? That's the first question I ask them. I didn't ask them about their educational background. I didn't ask them, did they pull for Auburn or Alabama? I wanted to know, first off, do they know Christ? And when my child told me, yes, they do, I said, great, then you know their testimony. Please share their testimony with me. 
Well, they learned what daddy was going to do, and they got all that stuff down before they came to me and said anything. Because that, that puts you in an awful big, well, they go to church. I said, son, listen, hey, a lot of people go to church, die, and go to hell. I said, going to church doesn't, listen, I got a car in the garage. I can walk in the garage. That doesn't make me a car. You know, being in church doesn't guarantee you're going to be in heaven. So that's what you find Abraham doing here. He's already nailed it down who the boy is not going to date. And the question you come back with in all of this is why? Why would he not let him date? That's where they lived. Aren't we supposed to love our neighbors? Absolutely. Uh, If you look at Abraham, Abraham lived at peace with all of these Canaanites that were around him. Um, You saw when he went to buy the cave at Machpelah that he paid the full price for it. He treated them with respect. He treated them with honor. Well, why was it that God was so determined uh, not to let this boy get hooked up with a Canaanite woman? Because, here you go, the Canaanites were alienated from God. They had rejected God, and so God had rejected them. Now, there are certain examples. You're going to come to Caleb. Remember Caleb? Out of, Joshua, out of Judges and Othniel, who were both Kenites, which are Canaanites, um, there were those who came, and they became what we call God-fearers. But for the whole of the nation, they had rejected God, and God had rejected them. They, they were alienated from God. Now, let me just give you a verse over in 1 Corinthians that you know very well, chapter 6. And this may be as far as I'm able to get tonight. Get over to first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul's going to talk about this very thing. And you come to verse 14 and verse 15. Paul writes and he says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now just stop and think about what you just read. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Or if you have the King James, it's going to say unequally yoked. Now, that, that's going to come out of, and I have no doubt that Paul's mind was not going back to, and it may be Deuteronomy 22, I can't remember, but it's where you are told you do not plow with an ox and an ass. You don't plow with an ox and a donkey. You don't do that. You've got a clean animal and an unclean animal. And you don't plow with a clean animal, and you don't yoke up a clean animal to an unclean animal. Now, the Jews would have automatically understood that. They wouldn't have, nobody would have had to explain that to them. They would have grasped that concept right there of being unequally yoked. It goes back to the fact that those who are clean are not to be yoked with those that are unclean. We would say saved and unsaved. He comes here and he says, those who believe and those who are not believers, unbelievers. Now he's going to give you five what's. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He doesn't answer a single one of those because the answer is obvious. They don't have anything to do with each other. They have nothing in common with each other. So the word of God is very clear about this very thing, and that is believers are not to be unequally yoked 
with an unbeliever. Now you say, well, now what areas does that, does that talk about? I think it in any area where it links the two of you up. You say, well, can I not go to my neighbor's house? Sure you can. That's not what it's saying. I think it's talking about how we are drawn in, yoked into business partnerships with unbelievers. Uh, I had a I had a businessman in my first church who was a very wealthy man, very wealthy family, who called me down to his office one day, sat across. He was like a daddy to me in, in a lot of ways. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, I am yoked with an unbeliever man and I am in a financial mess. And he said, I want us to get on. I've called you down here. Will you come and pray with me that we can get this thing untangled? If I can get out and just be broke, I will be glad to just be broke. And so we prayed. And, you know, he said, I will never do it. And in his prayer, he, prayed, he said, God, I will never do this again. Same thing with young people. And in my own personal life, I told this to uh, the committee and to the elders when I came here. If your child comes to me and is a believer and they are dating an unbeliever and say, will you marry us? If that unbelieving person that they're dating will get saved, yes, I will. But I cannot marry a believer and an unbeliever. Have you ever married two unbelievers? Hey, in a heartbeat and preached the gospel the entire time. But I cannot do that. I, I can't do that. And I just caution you as a pastor, look, you know, you stay away from those kind of things. Let me, let me wrap this up by saying, why is he so adamant here about his going back to Haran? Why does, he, why does he stress that? Don't take him back there. Whatever you do, he can't go. Eliezer, I'm sending you back there, but now he can't go. And then when Eliezer asks this about it, he says, no, you can't do that. And he said, you, you promise me you're not going to take a, child, a wife from these Canaanites and you're not going to take my son back there. Why? Because he's kind of told you already in this that 65 years earlier, God called him out of that. And you stop and think, if he had let his boy go back to that place and he found Rebecca there and Rebecca said, and they they saw each other, they fell in love, and Rebecca said, now come on, let's stay here around my mom and dad. I'm a lot more comfortable here. I'm, I'm a lot more. It would have undone what God had spent 65 years doing in Abraham's life. That's why, listen, I, I don't know, I, this would be a great PhD dissertation. I don't know. I am certain that Abraham understood and knew, knew the uniqueness of Isaac. And he knew what the boy could do and what he couldn't do. Every child is different. I had one, my youngest boy, when it came to homework, I'd say, if you don't do it, I'm going to shoot you. He'd say, go get your gun. <laughs> and uh, to Trey, if I, if I even made an insinuation that you hadn't studied, he'd tear up and say, Daddy, I have and he had. So, you know, every child's unique. Every child's that We'll pick up here later. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.